This is Focal Point for Thursday, the 24th of June, 2010. The top 10 things we learned from Google. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you going? G'day. Well, well thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy but chastened. You're chasing the Well, happy because I've just come back from a trip to Sydney, running my two-day Build Your Website and Two Days Bootcamp workshop, which went really well. Chasing because I'm, I guess you've seen the news today, Chris. I, um, it was not more than a couple of months ago when we were criticizing Kevin Rudd and Stephen Conroy for their really over-the-top internet censorship plans and, I was just, I just thought that the guy after listening to our podcast might have, you know, maybe backed down on the legislation a bit. I didn't really expect him to resign. So you think Julie is going to um, make any changes to uh, the <laughs> internet policy as a, a consequence of listening to our podcasts? I think different persons, same policies. We'll just have to stay vigilant. We will. <laughs> Watch this space as always. Absolutely. So today we're not going to be talking about internet censorship. We're going to be talking about one of our favorite tools, and it's a tool that a lot of people use almost every day online, and it's, it's Google. The, we're talking about the top 10 things that we learned from Google. This is based on, or inspired by, if you like, an article that I read towards the end of last year. A columnist Aaron Goldman wrote an article called The Top 10 Things I Learned from Google, and we had listed those 10, and at the time I flagged that as something that we'd bring up in a future podcast. And we had a look at the 10, and we weren't particularly inspired by his 10, but the title was intriguing, so we've come up with our own. So these are the things that, that we've learned from Google, not necessarily technical things, so we're not really talking about the Google services as such, but we're talking about the way that Google works, the Google business model, and the impact that Google has had on the world. So we've picked five each. Why don't you start, Chris, with your first one? Sure. Well, the first one I've labelled the more the merrier. And that's because most people think of Google as a web search engine, and they'd be right. Uh, providing people with tools for searching the internet is what Google does best, but it's not actually how they make any money. The way they make money is from online advertising, so those ads that you see alongside your Google search results and embedded in other people's web pages and now in YouTube videos. Google earns money whenever someone clicks on one of these ads, or in some cases, just when those ads are being displayed. So their money-making formula is pretty simple. The more ads they display to more people, the more revenue they're going to earn. So as a consequence, Google want as many people as possible to be using the internet as often as possible. And that in turn explains why they offer so many different high-quality online services for free. And we spoke about this in in a previous podcast we called Free is the New Business Model. And as well as that, it also drives their open approach to software development. So they offer a whole range of software development kits, completely free, completely open, so that you can find out about them and tinker with them and even change them if you like. And that's because Google want to encourage other developers, not just their own techies, to provide cool new online services and tools that are going to entice more people to use the Internet more often. And when they do that, of course, they'll see more ads and perhaps even click on them. So once I started thinking of Google in the context of an advertising company, as well as being a search engine, then some of their business activities started to make more sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. And my first one, the first of my five points, is called Know Your Core Business. And it follows on exactly from that, Chris, because uh, – and you, you were the one who actually pointed this out to me and gave, gave me that perspective that you know, when you said – when we were talking about uh, that open and shut podcast that we did, and you said Google's an internet company and Apple's a hardware company and Google wants to make uh, – 
as I want to have as many people watching, uh, looking at their services as possible so that they make money from advertising, and Apple wants to sell as much hardware as possible, it really did clarify their business perspective. So Apple, for example, their first version of anything is pretty bad because they wanted to buy another version. Uh, they want to control the entire supply chain and the distribution. They don't want to provide software that other manufacturers can create hardware for. They, they, they're really expensive and they sell at a premium price because that's how they make their money. And and on the other side of the uh, fence is Google, where they give so much stuff away because they want more eyeballs looking at stuff. And why they're so pro uh, and in favour of the cl- of cloud computing, so online services are really important for Google. And the more that people use even online software, let alone online searching and online use of data, the better for Google. And, and of course, it's been really big to help people use the internet. And one of the examples is that Google has even promised to wire an entire city in the US. And they've put up this competition where towns and cities in the US have to bid to be wired by Google and they're going to provide very, very fast high-speed internet access and that's going to be at, at a fee but it's going to be provided by Google. So it's going to be extremely powerful and towns have done very clever things in order to try and win the, the competition that Google has, has created. I think one town is calling themselves Google Town or something like that. Uh, they're renaming themselves the, that to get Google's attention. And just as another example of this whole idea of knowing your core business, another example is Amazon.com. And I wrote about this and blogged about this in my email newsletter and in my blog a few weeks ago, Chris. Amazon.com, when the iPhone came out and when and now when the iPad came out, they were very quick to create a version of their Kindle app for the iPhone and iPad. And those, those Kindle apps are free. And yet they also sell their Kindle, which is their own hardware, their own ebook reader, for a price. And it's one of their best-selling products on their website. And yet they were happy to give away the same software, the same functionality, free of charge, to iPhone and iPad users. And that, that might sound strange, but really they realize that their core business is selling books, not selling book readers. So the more that people have access to books on Amazon and the easier it is for them to read books, the more books that Amazon can, can sell. And it really is another example of really being clear about your core business and it's a really good lesson for me as well so yeah as well as uh, google knowing their core business they know quite a lot about you especially if you have a google account and that's not just something like a gmail account google have a whole lot of different services that uh, if you're a member of them such as gmail uh, blogger if you've got a blogger blog or if you've uploaded some of your pictures to picasa or if you've even uploaded a video to youtube or, or left a comment on one of the videos um, if you've got a Google toolbar in your web browser, then Google's going to be storing data about you or that account that you hold. Um, and in order to make uh, you comfortable with the amount of data and information that Google know, they provide a privacy dashboard. And that gives you a visual summary of all of the data that Google holds against the various accounts that you might have with them. So uh, you might think that, well, okay, I don't have any Google accounts or I've logged out of all of my Google accounts and I'm not visiting a particular Google website. I'm not signed in to my Google account on my, uh, on my Google toolbar in my browser. So therefore, um, I'm kind of safe. Google isn't keeping track of me. But that's actually not the case. What I said before was that Google are an advertising company and their ads appear not just on their own websites but also on the websites of third parties. So, for instance, on my own blog, I've got some Google ads displayed there. So if you're visiting a website where one of Google's advertising partners is displaying those ads, 
then your um, your visit to that web page is known about. So Google tracks that and they uh, they accumulate and aggregate all kinds of analytics so that they can better target um, advertising at you. Now, Google's not necessarily linking it to your Google accounts, but nonetheless that information is being aggregate, aggregated. So uh, it's not always accurate, given some of the ads that Google have displayed to me. They seem to think that I'm single and overweight, but I'm actually neither of those two things. But there is, So there's obviously some room for improvement in the way that they target their advertising, and I might talk about that a bit later. And I think that's only going to get better. The, the way that they target the advertising, the, the algorithms and the systems are getting much more sophisticated now. Actually, just uh, on a side issue, Chris, I read an article recently in the last couple of weeks, you might have seen it as well, where a, there was a Dutch, I think he was a Dutch computer scientist who was recommending, when he was talking about online privacy, he was recommending that your private data uh, erodes over time. So rather than saying that, like, you know, Google gets access to your data because you fill in a form or any company gets access to your data and they hold on to it forever, what he's suggesting is that perhaps as time progresses, that data gets uh, more and more blurry. So they might have all your details at first and then after a few months, maybe they only have your postcode and then after a while, they only have the state or country that you're in because the, and his theory is that the the, the the really fine data is only relevant and uh, necessary uh, in the short term. And as time goes on, there's less need for it. So companies who are collecting data should do some sort of blurring of that data over time. I don't know whether you came across that. I didn't come across that particular article, but, yeah, I have heard that concept of data becoming it – kind of, it becomes stale, doesn't it, over time? Certain bits of information about you become less relevant as time passes. So things like your interests and that sort of thing, um, they, they, they're going to change. They're in flux. And so if they want to make these algorithms work better, they do need to um, sort of erode some of that information. Yeah, then that, that leads on to my next point, which is that, that some of that information, even though it's no longer personally identifying you anymore, can still be useful in aggregate. So it could still be useful to know how many, would you say, single and overweight males there are living in Mosman Park in Perth uh, over time. And that sort of information, that aggregate information, could be very powerful. So my second point is that Google knows not only about you, but about the world. And even if they don't know things about people individually, that aggregate data is, is really valuable. For example, some people have already postulated that Google knows about things like the spread of um, swine flu and other flus, other epidemics, much faster than officials like the Center for Disease Control in the U.S. or the World Health Organization do, simply because people... Uh, go to Google straight away. So when they have symptoms of a cold or a flu, they go straight to Google to see what see what remedies are available. And there's a whole bunch of people searching for the same thing. And because Google has that information available, it actually knows if, if they could be bothered looking it up, they could look at the trending topics and say, wow, a lot of people are searching for this at the moment, even before those people go into medical centers and the doctors get around to reporting that to the relevant authorities. So... Because Google's so pervasive, uh, the trends that Google shows are actually quite representative of certainly uh, the sort of populations that we live in. So the US, Australia, countries which are very highly wired and are heavily using Google, um, Google knows a lot about us. That's right, and they've used that aggregation of information in a couple of their services. So the first one that springs to mind is Gmail. I understand that when people label 
email as spam, then all of the Gmail users' labelling of, um, of messages as spam is used by Gmail to identify any new incoming spam. And the other one is the Google Suggest tool. So when you uh, type in keywords into the search box, uh, before you've even uh, typed a few characters, it's starting to suggest possible search terms that you might be interested in entering. Um, so, for instance, if you were to type J-U-L today, I tried this earlier, you would end up with Julia Gillard as one of the top-ranked suggested uh, keyword searches. Uh, and that all comes about by aggregating the various searches that people have performed over time or performed recently. Yeah, that's right. So that aggregate information, Google's making use of to help us um, and hopefully not using it against us. That's right. Google have been around for 10 years. They're growing uh, in strength and also they've become more powerful. So I've witnessed increasingly they're flexing their political muscle. So as they've uh, grown in their financial capacity, they've also started to uh, throw their weight around in a political sense. And in the past year, three uh, incidents come to mind. The first, this was the game of political brinkmanship they played with the Chinese government regarding uh, the Great Firewall of China. Uh, that was in response to a hacking incident uh, at the end of last year, um, and that resulted in them deciding that they were going to pull out of China unless the Chinese government um, eased, eased the amount of censorship that... Google had to perform on their Chinese uh, search engine. Ultimately, the Chinese government simply said, we're not going to make any uh, exception for the likes of uh, Google or anyone else who wants to do business in China. We make the rules, and if you want to do business here, you have to play by the rules. And so in the end, Google shuttered their operations in China, and there's no longer a Chinese language search engine offered by Google. Uh, more recently, they weighed into the debate on the Rudd government's plans to censor the internet and whether they remain the Gillard government's plans uh, remains to be seen. But uh, they were essentially critical of, uh, critical of the, the government's plans for censorship and that, brought them, that, that, that caused quite a lot of friction between uh, Stephen Conroy, who's the Minister for the Communications and Broadband Portfolio, and Google. Uh, he also, there, there was also uh, a chapter in that episode where Google, where the minister, Senator Conroy, asked them to apply censorship to YouTube videos, and Google simply said, no, we're not going to, to do that. We have our own censorship uh, mechanisms in place, and we're not going to make exceptions for any particular government. And uh, on the front of digital copyright, um, they've lobbied against digital uh, big media's attempts to further erode fair use provisions in copyright legislation. So obviously they want to allow people to make use of um, digital media in a way that's going to, to sort of make these, uh, these things thrive. So things like sites like YouTube and Picasa, which rely on people uploading and sharing digital content, uh, they're both important to Google and they don't want fair use provisions being eroded and, and thus YouTube and Picasa suffering as a consequence. Yes, yeah, so Google is certainly very powerful, but uh, so far, and this might be debatable, I think Google seems to be using his power for good. And it reminds me of Get Smart, where, they, where he often says, like, I, if only he'd used his wooden leg for niceness instead of evil. <laughs> and so far, Google seems to be using his power for niceness, and Google's motto is do no evil. And by and large, by, let's say, by general standards, and again, this can be debated, uh, they seem to be living up to that. So the, 
the Chinese controversy, we can argue about that, and there's certainly pros and cons, and we talked about both the pros and the cons in our podcast about that, the great foul of China. But we tend to agree with some of their stands, their other stands on the internet censorship issue, the copyright legislation issue, and they seem to be taking the approach of let the people do whatever they can. So they seem to be looking at greater freedom rather than greater restrictions, and perhaps that's why we, we tend to support them. Um, the other th- interesting thing is that Google has pretty much seen in our light, uh, in our eyes, as the good guys, and most people and even the media seem to give them the benefit of the doubt, even when they do something wrong. For example, recently there's a controversy, which is still ongoing, about them when their Street View cameras went around taking photos of everybody so that they could, uh, sorry, everybody's houses and streets, so they could add them to the Google Maps. They were also supposedly unintentionally collecting Wi-Fi information, and that, would, that was illegal. They shouldn't have been doing that. But they said it was a mistake. They said it was a technical uh, error and a technical oversight, and the media seemed to go along with that. And uh, I'm sure with some other companies, they would have come down much harder and been a bit more skeptical, um, probed a lot further. But with Google, they said, okay, well, we accept that as an error. Uh, and It's interesting if you contrast that with Facebook, and we had a recent episode about Facebook and their privacy policy and and changes to it, and that did did create a big controversy. And Google, like Facebook, Google's users aren't their customers. So we're the users, uh, as same as we're the users of Facebook, but their customers, as you've pointed out, are the advertisers who are spending money with them. But we are Google's product, which they then sell to advertisers. But unlike with Facebook, we seem to be willing to be used in this way. Um, even when we know about it, and I guess lots of people don't know about it, but even when we, when we do know, perhaps we have some sort of implicit trust that Google will live up to his promise of doing no evil. So that's the that's positive side of it. I guess the negative side, the downside, is that because they're big and they're powerful and they're a corporation and they're responsible to shareholders, well, who knows whether they're going to abuse their power sometime in the future. And apart from Google giving their word, there doesn't seem to be any sort of safeguard against them doing that. And I'm not talking about them doing illegal things, but just the fact that they're big and they have so much power means that if they choose to wield that power, in a certain way, we may not have much control over it. For example, you mentioned, Chris, earlier that you might have a Google account which which has access to a number of services. But what if Google decides to, at some point, shut down the, that account? Perhaps they accuse you of sending spam through that account, rightly or wrongly, and uh, they shut it down. And then suddenly, your access to all those services suddenly disappears. And apparently, Google's customer service is not really that great, and you've really got no recourse. So that power can be and possibly be, might possibly be used in the future against you. And it may not be that they're doing it deliberately. It may just be that you're suddenly up against this huge entity and you've got no, you've got no recourse if they do something that you don't like. Yeah, I think you made a good point, Gihan, earlier in this, in this particular topic when you said that they seem to be on the side of freedom for people. And, and whether that's because that they have this do-no-evil policy or whether it's because that freedom tends to be congruent with their business model, which is um, people getting as many people to use the internet in as many different ways as possible, um, it's difficult to say. It's just it could be that uh, it's in their self-interest, uh, their financial self-interest, to try and lobby for as much internet freedom for individuals as possible. So whether they're doing it for the right reasons or for moral reasons, it's difficult to say. But at the moment, as you say, they tend to be doing the right thing. Yep, they certainly do. So the next point uh, I was going to talk about was 
uh, one I've labelled, if you can't beat them, buy them. So uh, I said previously that Google are constantly working to improve the services they offer, but in some cases they have actually missed the boat. So while they are a really innovative engineering technical company, uh, sometimes they've just um, completely missed new trends and innovations in Web 2.0. So in some cases they've tried to play catch up by implementing their own versions of a particular new service, sometimes successfully, so things like Google Maps is a phenomenally good product, but they certainly weren't the first kid on the block when it came to online mapping services. Same with Gmail, again a really impressive uh, bit of technology and a very popular service, but there were many other web mail companies and services on offer even before the company Google existed. But in other instances, they haven't been so successful. So uh, when they tried to emulate Wikipedia, they set up a service called Null, and I don't think that's gone anywhere. I don't think it's been shuttered yet, but it certainly hasn't uh, displaced Wikipedia as uh, the online encyclopedia. But where they haven't... Um, where they haven't tried to implement their own particular service, they've also gone about acquiring innovative startups. So possibly the best known example of that is the YouTube video sharing website. So that started out um, as uh, an independent startup and Google had their own video sharing website. I think it was just called Google Video, um, but it didn't take off in the same way as YouTube did. And uh, so Google recognised that this was a really important uh, and popular service and they acquired them. I can't remember how much they paid for YouTube. Can you, Gihan? No, I don't remember, but I do remember at the time that a lot of people were predicting that the Google buying YouTube would be the death of YouTube, not because they'd want to kill it off, but because suddenly there'd be all these people whose copyright was being violated on YouTube who, uh, who suddenly had the ability to sue, sue a very big company, Google, after they took over YouTube. But that didn't happen. No, the, the predictions didn't turn out that way. Uh, another good example is Blogger. Again, uh, they missed the boat as far as blogging was concerned. That really took off. And so they acquired the, the blogger company rather than uh, implementing their own blogging service. And uh, the one that you and I use quite often, Gihan, is Google Docs. That, again, was independently developed by uh, a, as a service called Writely. And Google acquired the company that developed that. And now we have uh, the Google Docs product as a consequence. Yeah, and your point here is a really relevant one, Chris, for not just the way that Google operates, but the, the impact that it's had on the business world. I remember listening to one entrepreneur who turned into a venture capitalist, and I can't remember who it was. It was a podcast that I was listening to where he was saying that now more and more uh, entrepreneurs who are coming to his venture capital firm, their business model talks about growth. It talks about some innovation that they've got, but they have as their as their exit strategy, it's get bought by Google. Right, very good. <laughs> so their idea is that their, 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 their final customer, or the ultimate customer, is that they do so well, but in, in, in some small area that Google wants to buy them out. So it's interesting that even in that in, even in that entrepreneurial space, businesses are looking at Google as an exit strategy for their business, and so it's really influencing the way that businesses are being, are being started and run. So let me move on to my fourth one, Chris, and the, it's something that you mentioned earlier, and we've, we've said it through this podcast, that they're an excellent technical company, and it just astonishes me that they're not better as a marketing company. And if you contrast Google with Apple, you just see a very, very clear distinction. I think Apple's done a fabulous job of marketing uh, with its spin and its positioning and its building a cult of followers. Now, admittedly, I'm, I'm willing to admit that some of that's based on 
good products and you might even say great products, but they're also fabulous marketers and they know how to make their life easier for consumers. And some of that's done by deliberately eliminating features from their products. So, for example, with the iPhone, you can only get your apps from one place, the Apple iTunes uh, App Store. Um, developers for the iPhone can't do certain things. Uh, with with their software that they develop. And even the early version of the iPhone didn't even have cut and paste because I guess Apple thought it was going to be something too complicated for users to, to use. Uh, and Google, on the other hand, offers really, really powerful technology. And again, they try to make as many features available as possible. But some of that is su- surprisingly difficult to use. And maybe not for techies like you and me, Chris, but for ordinary people trying to make use of some of the Google services, it's not always very easy to figure out. So, for example, I know you're really big into visual- visualization, Chris, and you probably use the Google a Visualization API, which is fantastic. It's a set of tools which allows you to show complicated information in visual form. And it's fast superior to some of the other things that I've seen, even some of the other paid products that are available. But the interesting thing is that the paid products usually, and perhaps because they don't have the the clout of Google, they usually have a a pretty nice user interface, some sort of wizard that takes you step by step through saying, okay, here's an Excel spreadsheet, which columns do you want, how do you want to visualize it, and then they produce the final at the final result, whereas the Google system doesn't. It expects you to read this technical documentation and figure out which bits fit together, and you may have to refer back to other parts of the Google documentation because it's, it's mentioning things that you don't really understand. And so it, it's not really easy to use. Um, and I just think that for a company that's doing so well, I'm quite, I was quite surprised. I was and a bit disappointed with some of the things that, that Google made that didn't make easier for people to use. Um, I guess another example is that I recently bought uh, bought an Android-based tablet, so something similar to the Apple iPad. And I, it's, the Android-based tablets aren't available widely in Australia yet, but I bought one through eBay from somebody in China. And, and some people are calling this an iPad clone, but that's that's just revealing a little bit of ignorance because it's not. It's running Google's operating system, Android. But, uh, which, which is quite powerful, but it also means that it doesn't come with some of this, some of the things which make the Apple iPad really attractive and compelling. For example, the, the App Store, which iPad users like and iPhone users have been using for a couple of years. The Google has another one, has one called the Android Market, uh, but because Google's making the, the whole Android software available to anybody to use, they don't want to make the market available as standard. In fact, they're trying to do a favor to other manufacturers by saying, look, we're not going to put our market on there. You can put your own marketplace on there, which is fabulous, except that the one, because I bought it from China, it has a Chinese app store, which I'm sure it's great, but it's no good for me, and it means that I then have to go and search the internet for the apps that I want, and I can't install the Google one, it's not available for me to install, so I don't get access to all the apps that are available for other Android users. So, you know, there, there's some downsides to that, that power as well, and the, and the fact that they, they are still thinking like techies rather than thinking from a marketing viewpoint. So, I've been talking for a while, Chris, but my third example in this whole, in this whole area of Google being run by techies, uh, the third piece of evidence is that recently Google introduced this social networking feature, which is called Google Buzz. And it seemed really great, except that it created one big privacy issue that by default, unless you opted out, so it was, op, uh, it, was it opted you in by default, 
anybody could see your 20 closest friends or the 20 people that you communicated with the most. Now, I'm sure that when Google was testing this in their labs uh, internally within Google, they thought, oh, this is a feature. This is really useful. And they didn't realize that the public would see that as a privacy breach. And again, it's one of those examples where the engineers think this is great, but it obviously didn't get enough of uh, an investigation by the marketing people before it was released on the world. Now, to their credit, they decided to pull that very quickly. So within a week, they pulled that feature and it went back to the drawing board. And um, they, I'm, I'm sure that when they release it again, they will take those sort of things into account more rigorously. But it's another example of Google just being run by techies. Yes, yeah, and that's something you could contrast with the similar problems Facebook had recently. So there was nowhere near the degree of outrage when Google uh, introduced this buzz feature and and the consequent uh, exposure of privacy, uh, people's privacy uh, from that when you compare that with the changes Facebook made to their privacy policy recently. So it sort of harkens back to your previous point about uh, Google using their power for good. People seem to give Google the benefit of the doubt and, and dismissed this mistake this as a mistake, as a technical error, whereas when Facebook changed their privacy policy, it was seen as being a rather cynical move and trying to get more information so that they could be more appealing to advertisers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So again, I think that with that Google has built up enough in uh, enough positive deposits in our, in, in our emotional bank account, as Stephen Covey calls it, that when they make the occasional withdrawal, it's it's there's still enough of a positive balance in there that people still go, okay, well, it was just a mistake. But if they keep doing it, I think that they may see some of the same problems that Facebook and other companies are facing. Okay, Gihan, do you want to wrap it up then? Yeah, sure. Look, so I'm going to do two in a row, and I'm going to leave you to finish off because I think your last point of the ten is, I think, a really good one to finish off on. So my fifth point is that substance can still beat style, and this is, for me, the most heartening aspect of Google, despite some of the problems that they have with the being run by techies and some of their stuff being a little bit cryptic and difficult to use. I really like the fact that Google has grown, and it's grown by being good, not just by having lots of money and not just being good at marketing spin. So, for example, it's not the number one search engine because it was the first. In fact, it wasn't. It was a long way behind. The search engine market was quite mature by the time that Google came in 10 years ago. And it wasn't the first because it had the biggest marketing budget. It didn't. It came out of university. It was the first because it had the best way for people to find information. Technically, the technical algorithm was superior to others. So people started using it. They started liking it. They started switching to it. And therefore, it became the first. Similarly, even with the smartphone market, I've mentioned this Android-based, uh, this Android platform, this Android operating system, which Google is letting manufacturers use free of charge. Uh, Google is way behind, uh, it was way behind Apple when it first started uh, rolling out the Android-based phones it and its, uh, and its partners. Um, and it's certainly way behind uh, Apple in terms of marketing and distribution at the moment, even for smartphones. But you're the one who alerted me, Chris, to an article that said just last month, there were more Android-based phones in the U.S. than there were Apple phones, and not just sold in the last month, but Android had overtaken the Apple iPhone as a number two smartphone in the market behind BlackBerry. So that's really happening as well because it's saying that despite the marketing and distribution and the spin that Apple has, that the I think the Android-based operating system, which is a better phone, is still going to win out. And I think that um, I really like that idea that substance still has value and substance can still beat style.
All right. Uh, so the, my concluding point is to, is to remark that there's still room for improvement. So I use Google every day in both my professional and social life, and search is by far the tool that I use the most. And in the 10 years I've been using it, I have seen a steady improvement in the quality of both the search results and the search interface that Google offers. But I'm still regularly coming across problems. Uh, I can't always find the information that I need. And I know that it's out there. I might be looking for a particular web page that's got a, a programming tip on it. And I know it's there, but I can't quite come up with the right combination of keywords, including exclude certain phrases, enclosing keywords in quotes, and other restrictions. I can't quite uh, uh, nail that particular, particular search result that I, I know is out there and I want to find using Google. So there's still some room for improvement. It's, it's a difficult problem, obviously, to provide a, a perfect index to all of the Internet's web pages. Um, but I'm sure that Google are going to continue to improve both their interface and their search engine, as well as the various other offerings that they've got. And that's something that uh, I'm certainly looking forward to. Yeah, that's right. So those are the 10 things that we learned from Google and the thing, some of the things that we like about Google. And we'd both be interested in hearing what other people's uh, comments are and their experiences from Google. So if you have any comments, please make them in the comments area of the blog post that accompanies this podcast. And we'll get together in a fortnight's time, Gihan, and uh, have something else to talk about, I'm sure. We will. Thanks very much, Chris. Bye for now. Speak to you then, Gihan. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.focalpointpodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to our past episodes, or leave us your comments or questions. We look forward to having you back next time.